you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hello there, and welcome to the Behind the Mirror podcast. Today's episode is part two of the best of season one. I aired last week the part one version of the best of season one with some of our highlights. And I had originally anticipated that would only be one episode, but I had so many awesome guests to pick from. I just couldn't combine it all in one episode. So I broke it up into two and this would be part two. And in this episode, you're going to hear the best of my conversations with Pete Enns of the Bible for Normal People, of Tim Rimmel, who is an author and a speaker, and from Jim Lee, who does a ton of inner healing work. And these conversations were just so insightful and so good. And after you hear these little highlights, if you missed those original episodes, you're totally going to want to go back and listen to them because they were just so good. We're going to talk about things like being authentic and how important it is to be our authentic selves and what that looks like when we're trying to deconstruct our faith and try to figure out how to be authentic inside of this whole Christian thing. We talk about our LGBT brothers and sisters in that community, and we talk about how to reinterpret the way we look at the Bible and what it looks like to actually read the Bible for what it is, and wrestle with a lot of the tension inside of it. And so these are some conversations that were just really impactful for me. And I know that you will totally get a ton out of them too. So super stoked you jumped in on this episode. Now, before we get into all of those awesome conversations, I have to give a shout out to our latest Patreon supporter, Marisa Porter, she has signed on to support this podcast monthly, and I am just honored beyond belief. I tell you, every time I see a new Patreon supporter come through my email, I'm just like, what? Another person supporting this show? It just it just shocks me and excites me and makes me feel like I'm not in this thing by myself. So thank you, Marisa. It just means so much. And to all of my Patreon supporters, you guys are the pulse behind this show. And I am so honored to be doing this work alongside you. And I'm just looking forward to another awesome season. So thank you, Marisa. Thank you, all of my other Patreon supporters. If you are interested in supporting this show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can go to my website, justajesusfollower.com and click on the button for Patreon. And it spells out everything you need to know there. And I also have to say to all of you guys who have rated this show on iTunes, thank you. Those ratings help this show grow and help other people find it. So I read those. I love them. They encourage me. And thank you to all of you who have done that. And if you haven't done that, hop over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It really does help this show move. So thank you guys for all of your 
your feedback. Thank you for jumping on this journey with me during this first season of even trying to do this podcasting thing. You guys have made this show what it is. And I show up every week and you guys do too. And I love the community that we have built here. So to all of you, this is a huge like shout out to every single one of you and a big hug from me to you, wherever you are. I love you and I thank you. And I can't wait for season two. So without any further ado, here is the best of season one, part two. Here we go. Christianity, many times we're taught to put on a facade. We're, we're taught to play a part. We're taught to wear another face. And that's not only unhealthy, but it's, um, it's unholy mm-hmm. because God wants us to be where we are. Right. And, and, and to express where, where our hearts truly find themselves. And, you know, too, this leads into, um, I think, a lot of what what I see with people who are in what you referenced earlier, the deconstruction phase um, or even just a transition of faith is they have been the victims of horrific behavior at the hands Mm. of quote unquote godly people. And so there's this weird line that gets blurred for a lot of people in their trauma that includes people doing things under the umbrella of, well, this is godly. So sit here and take it whether it's being, you know, publicly shamed or condemned and had, you know, the Bible thrown at them. I know a lot of people have have experienced so much hurt and pain through situations like that. And so, you know, we talk about healing from trauma and moving into safer communities, but you know, they have to heal from trauma and in a safe and move into a safer relationship with God, too. It's like these two kind of go hand in hand because for someone who's experienced spiritual trauma, you've got both of those going at the same time. So um, how do you, how do you differentiate that? What would you say to someone who's really struggling to separate those two things? Well, I would say the key to connecting with God is connecting with people. And so um, people are the bridge. And, And I want you to think about it in these terms. So all of us have this default a perception of God that comes from our earthly fathers. Now, sometimes we don't like to admit that, and I've heard people deny that. Um, but if you give me time enough to probe with them and ask them enough questions, they usually begin to understand that and and adopt that. But if you think about, you know, when we adopt and we experience um, these interactions with parents, especially with our earthly fathers. When we begin to adopt it in our hearts, we begin to project that onto who God is. And so, so if that's true, and I believe it is true, but if that's true, the way out of that is for new people to come along and to help deconstruct that position and that experience. And what's critical is that it's experience related. In other words, the we only learn... Um, at the heart level, we only learn by experience. And so isn't it interesting that Jesus said, you know, they'll, you'll, they'll know that you're my disciples if you have correct theology one with another. He didn't say that, did he? No. And so he said, you're, you're going to, they're going to know that you're for real. 
if you have love one for another. If they experience that love, that's how they'll know. And so the way through that, the pathway through that is people. And so it kind of goes back to save people again, doesn't it? Because um, people are the key to, to bring us to new places. That's so good. That's so good and so true. And um, I, I think a lot of people want that. Um, but they, you know, if you've been in one community for decades and these are the only people that you and your family know, it can be very scary to branch out and find a new community. So putting on your therapist hat, what would you say to someone sitting in front of you saying, I want that, I want safe people, I want to rebuild, but I don't know where to start. And what I would say is begin to take baby steps and baby steps could be uh, going to see someone to help you walk through certain things because some people, they're just not used to having that level of vulnerability. And so if they have someone they can go see, a counselor, a therapist, whoever, um, and then they can begin to get, you know, dip their toe in the water, so to speak, and get to a place where they can begin to open up. And then over time, then there's, there's groups all over Kansas City. There's, there's, there's thousands of them, literally thousands of them. Where, you know, with a little bit of investigation, you, you can begin to um, discover and with some help from some trusted friends, some trusted others in your life, um, you can begin to find those communities and then see where those go. But, you know, I'm a proponent that everybody needs a life team. And so for me, what a life team is, is it's, it's a group that I chose um, and it's the people that I chose and I meet with them every Tuesday at 3.30. And so it's, it's on, it's on my calendar. Um, it's people that I admire, people that, um, I want to spend time with. And, uh, for those people that say, well, I would love to do that. I just don't have any people that will, well then, um, you know, look around or, or ask or email or whatever. And, you know, between the two of us, we can help you find, um, a place to at least start mm. and, and to connect with some, some safe people. That's good. And you know, it takes, it takes vulnerability to do, to do that. So even someone being brave enough to put themselves in a position to have that conversation, they're already one step there. They're already one step Definitely. towards that freedom because it, it takes vulnerability to admit that you need people. And for a lot of yeah. us, even that was a huge, you know, light bulb moment to be able to say that out loud that I can't do this on my own. It's not healthy and I need a safe group of community around me. And, um, and I think people forget that that in and of itself is a big victory and you're already moving towards what you want. The thing is, though, we cannot prove God's existence one way or another. We can't say that he, there's no proof that he does exist. There's no proof that he doesn't exist. The question is, how do we believe in God? And my perspective on that is that God embodies all truth. And truth is subject to scrutiny. So if we are true believers in truth, then we're able to scrutinize that truth without fear, without question without the worry of our, our foundation is going to fall apart because our foundation is our truth and our foundation is authenticity. So the only thing that's going to shake us up is when we're not being authentic. If we're not being authentic to ourselves, 
then we're going to struggle to scrutinize truth. Mm. And you know, when you, when you mentioned, I, I'm a lover of history, by the way, so you've captivated me on that, on that caveat there. When you mentioned how you were questioning, you know, is the Bible true? Is the Bible not true? And then you talk a little bit about the history of just Christianity overall inside of America, inside the culture we know here. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that has been asked over and over again every couple hundred of years about all kinds of topics because the Bible is so quote unquote black and white about so many things that over time we evolve out of. <laughs> yes, right. So, you know, we have this history of doing exactly what you're talking about, this history of wrestling with the text and looking at it with a critical thinking lens and saying, okay, so if we're going to be authentic, like you said, and we're going to look at this now from that angle, what do we say about it now? You know, and thankfully, we looked at slavery differently. Thankfully, we looked at women's issues differently. You know, thankfully, we have progressed so far off of so many black and white truths inside of the text. So I just wanted to mention that for our listeners, because I think we forget sometimes that this is a a pattern we've been in the whole time. Yeah, and and you're right. And and it has changed and it will continue to change. And I think we're in a new era now. Uh, I know a lot of people that are in the um, LGBT Christian movement, and there's a lot of things that have progressed and changed. And you're seeing these movements pick up. You're seeing evangelical churches that are saying we're, you know, we're going to we're accepting LGBT people. They can share in leadership. They can be in our choirs. They can, and they can be open about who they are. So that's a, a massive change. And quite honestly, I never thought I would live to see that day coming from, you know, from where I came from, yeah. but you're right. You know, we still do it. I, I mean, we still, racism is a massive problem in America and it has its roots back in, in the church. Um, right. You know, I mean, that's the civil war. That's, that was the problem with the civil war is that, they don't want to give up slavery. and But you can't talk about slavery in the church without talking about um, the corporate world, which is, you know, which has combined now with the religious right. And we just have mass incarcer- incarceration, um, you know, so it's it's continuing. It's just continuing, continuing differently. And we're still putting the God label on it. We're still justifying it. And there are no scriptures in the Bible that condemn slavery. So there's always a way around something. You can interpret the Bible to say anything you want, because again, we believe first, and then we find things to back up those beliefs. Right. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a question that I know is ringing in the heads of probably a good portion of my audience. And that question would be, okay, I hear your story. I'm resonating with what you're saying. But what about all of these people that are now getting really loud with their books and with their testimonies of saying that, that it worked for them, that they are no longer gay, that God healed them, set them free, you know, help, help us connect those dots. That's a great question. So here's what happens in that, in that world is that first of all, there, I have a friend of mine who worked for a family research Institute and she back in the day, um, she's actually since come out. She's, she's, um, bisexual, but she's married and has stayed married. But she said that when she was in that environment, one of the things that they would say, especially when you would have inevitably have one of those people fall was that ex gays are a necessary evil. So they would put that up. They would tout them. And if you go back in time, 
And you can look back to when I was involved and then even past that in the 1980s, you'll find the stars. You'll find the stars of the X game movement. And then you'll see that a few years later, three years, five years, 20 years later, they disappear. You've got a new set that comes behind them. They're the, the 20-somethings are attractive. They're charismatic. They, they do what we did. So it's this revolving door of people that are going through this. Mm-hmm. So, and the other thing is you have to ask the question, what is change? If you're saying that I'm changed, what exactly does that mean to you? Because in that environment, we change the definition of the word change. Let me give you an example. Last year, uh, gospel singer Kim Burrell had made a statement about um, gay people, and she basically said that they were demonized or something along those lines. And she was actually set to appear on the Ellen DeGeneres show when the movie The Hidden Figures came out. She was going to sing something with Pharrell Williams. Yes, I remember this. Yes. Yes. So Ellen kicked her off the show, said, no, you're uninvited. And I wrote an article to say, hey, Kimberell, here's why what you said is a problem. And I talked about how how she's demonizing this group of people that, you know, you don't understand the story. You're not helping anybody. You're not showing love. You're just perpetuating this idea that you're of the devil. Mm-hmm. I got contacted by an unlikely source of hers from that article and he said, hey, you know, can you just write something? Kimberell's a really great person. This is what she did for me. And so I said, well, you know, let me, so I, he sent me a, a, a piece where he was on the news and it was talking about how he was standing up for Kimberell. And that he was a very effeminate young man. And in that news story that he sent, it referenced an older story where he was in, where he was transgender and where he was homeless. And so this is where the story picked up for me is that when he started talking about his life, I started asking him questions. I said, look, you know, l- let me let me ask you some questions about you. I said, how did you get to know Kim Burrell? Why were you there? And so he told me his story, which was that at a time when he was down and out, he had been, he had gone to the church. Um, it resonated with him and that Kim took him in. They took care of him. He was now dressing male. But if you look at his social media, he was presenting at, you know, was his, his his pronouns were they and theirs. He wasn't even identifying his male on the pronouns. And then his name was this gender mixture. It really wasn't one or the other. Mm. So I said, how, you know, tell me a little bit of your story. So he said, well, I went to church and that's where I got delivered. And I said, can you explain to me what you mean by delivered? And so he kind of skirted the, the issue. He didn't really answer the question. And I said, I said, so when you say delivered to them in your testimony, are they hearing what you're saying? And he said, well, you know, God makes it, and he quoted a bunch of scriptures to me and he said, this, God makes it simple. So we don't have to ask questions. We just know that God has delivered us. And by the, the, the long, we went back and forth for quite some time. I heard what he wasn't saying. I've, I've interviewed a lot of ex-gay people yeah, and we, present this image that, again, we want to believe this. We need to believe this because if the Bible's wrong, then that means we have to take apart our own foundations. And that's incredibly scary because where does that leave us? Right. So this is the same that you see with a lot of ex-gay people is that you change the word change. When you're saying change, God has changed me. It doesn't mean that I'm straight anymore. It just it just means that I am struggling and God has helped, God has given me grace or God is helping me through it. Or as in many cases, I've suppressed this. I pushed this down. I can tell you that of the, of the many, many, many people that I've interviewed that I've known who are friends of mine, who some of whom are still married is that there are backstories that are not public that, I, and I wouldn't out anyone. I wouldn't share their stories, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that is not seen 
in the church. I can't say that that happens with everyone. I certainly can't give you statistics because when you start talking about sexuality, a lot of that stuff, we, we present what we want to be presented. Right. The only true way to test somebody is with a physical test where you hook them up with their genitals and then you present pornography or something in front of them and then you can get a physiological response. There's not a long line of people waiting to take that test. <laughs> no, no. So this is about belief and belief, again, is very powerful. What happens is that when you go through life and your biology is screaming at you that I have to live in my authenticity and we typically see this psychologically, we start to see that around middle age late 30s, 40s, 50s. I've talked to guys that were in their 60s and 70s that have written to me and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm married all these years, but I just need to tell somebody that I'm a gay man and you know I've been acting out or I've been doing whatever. So just because they present the story doesn't necessarily make that true. And in fact, according to the research, there is not a single stitch of evidence to show that anybody has ever changed their sexual orientation. Really? Not a single one? Not a single one. There's nothing out there. And one of my professors, John Levinson, and I always, this is a pseudo quote, the way I remember it, but this is definitely the gist of it. Uh, He said, for Jews, the Bible is a problem to be solved. For Christians, it's a message to be proclaimed. And if it's a problem Uh. to be solved, you can gather around a table and debate and leave arm in arm. But if it's a message, you have to agree. There can be no ambiguity. And, And what frustrates, you know, my evangelical and fundamentalist brothers and sisters more than saying, this is an ambiguous and unclear text. And, and we have to figure it out, and, and we may arrive at very different opinions on this. No, 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 it's clear. It, it's clear. I mean, God's inner, God would never deceive us. Well, he's not deceiving anybody, <laughs> but the text is ambiguous. It, it simply is. So, you know, can we start with that instead of starting with this, this almost philosophical starting point, an inerrant text, because God is logical and God is pure mind and blah, blah, blah. How about saying, this is an ambiguous, ancient, and diverse text. That's my starting point. Mm. Why? Because that's what I'm reading. And there's no sin in my heart. Well, there is, but that's not keeping me from seeing you know, what's there. It's right. just there. Well, and, and the Bible, I think it invites us into that. And, you know, I've heard people say, I even heard someone say this recently is, well, it's just, it's so clear. It's just so simple. I don't know why people don't understand how simple it is. And I'm looking at this person going, have you read it? <laughs> Have you actually read it? (laughs) Because it is far from simple. I mean, I suppose you could take one or two verses and make those your mantra and consider that simple. But when you read everything inside of the context, inside of the culture dynamics, inside of even just Old Testament stories that conflict one another, you know, it... It is inviting you into an argument. I mean, and some people, you know, and I say this again with respect that I think you have to get to a point where you're ready to see it. And if you're mm. not, that's fine. Yeah, I'm not going to like hang you or anything like that. It's, you know, if I were a king of Christianity, I would leave you alone. I wouldn't bother you. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think people have to be ready to see. It can't be forced upon them. But when they do, yeah, I just, <laughs> forgive me, and just another little very brief anecdote here with a class that I was teaching a few years ago, uh, we were looking at the Pentateuch, and uh, we were reading Deuteronomy, and I always have the students read the fourth chapter, 
because it sort of introduces all the legal stuff that we get into. But in the fourth chapter, Moses is recounting the past about we went here and the, you know, the Amorites this and, and Og and Bashan and all that stuff, you know, that, that and, and, you know, that's led us up to this point. And then he says, and God, you know, driving out the Canaanites from the land and, and as it is to this day. And that little phrase, as it is to this day, is a very curious <laughs> one. And and and, and then my, the student who read it the last time, he raised his hand and he said, uh, Professor Renz, how can Moses be talking about the conquest of something that's already happened? And I said, good question. Let's talk mm. about that. You know, because if you just, if you're an alert reader, and I have to hand it to the history of Judaism, talk about alert, minute, detailed readers oh, of texts. Yeah. They knew all this stuff, I mean, not all of it, but they, they were well-versed in the fact that the Bible has tremendous tensions in it, and so they talk about it, and they try to resolve them in some way, but not in an inerrantist kind of way. There are different ways of looking at these things, but they notice them. And for, for Christians, we don't always notice them. And I, I remember James Kugel, another one of my Jewish professors at Harvard, he, we were talk, I didn't even know what we were talking about, but... Somebody said something, some Protestant in the class said something was on the Psalms. And he said, have you never read this before? <laughs> like, how can you not see this? It's right in front of your face. And it's worse in Hebrew. You know, it's more ambiguous. So, and I just, and that's why to me, see, this is the thing. Here's the problem. Okay. We present this, what we're talking, what you and I are talking about now, this is often presented as a problem and we have to find some way to solve it, to get back to a Bible. What if these things aren't problems? Mm. What if these things show us something of the character of the Bible, like you said, invites us into something other than simply accessing information? Right. Right. A lot of people look at the Bible, and I was raised as one of these people, that it's like a Google search engine. You type in your question, <laughs> and you just expect the answer to pop up because God would, of course, offer that in the text. And it's, you right. really cannot look at it that way. No, all you have to do is keep turning the pages, you know, and Proverbs is notorious for that and, and some other places as well. But it's, it's almost as if, well, you know, what do I know what God does? But it's almost as if the book is set up to keep us from being an errantist, to keep us from being biblicists. In my mind's eye, you know, I can imagine this conversation a long time ago, long before Christianity, where some scribe said, oh, Lord, can we have this in writing? And he says, well, why? Well, we just want to make sure we get it right because a lot of time has passed and the days of David are long gone. We just want to get it right. And the Lord says, okay, fine. I will give you a Bible. But just so we don't get off on the wrong step and just so you don't get the wrong idea about this thing being some holy thing to be worshipped, I'm going to put in there two conflicting histories of Israel mm. called Samuel Kings and then First and Second Chronicles. Or I'm going to have all the laws simply not match and have them be in conflict with each other. There are going to be significant differences between Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And, oh, here's the thing. I'll start with a creation story, and then right after that, another creation story that aren't compatible with each other. Mm -hmm. And then in chapter three, I'm going to have two magic trees and a talking snake 
And if that doesn't help people understand that this is symbolic and metaphorical and not literal and obvious, uh, we're going to have genealogies in chapter four and five that don't match. Oh, and uh, Cain and Abel are going to sacrifice, even though sacrifice is instituted until the time of Moses. And, oh, wait a minute. Oh, and the flood story, we're still in Genesis here, right? The flood story is going to have tensions <laughs> within it. And then there are going to be two different versions of how the nations spread out across the world and how languages started. And it's whether you read the end of the Noah story, or the Tower of Babel story, we're not even into the patriarchs yet. And the, if you don't have by now the right the idea <laughs> that this is not a text right. you're supposed to look at literally, I don't know what's going to convince you. So then how would you how would you tell someone to view the Old Testament. Yeah, I would tell them to, well, I would say, here's how I view it. And I wouldn't tell them how to do anything because I think we all have to, I'm still discovering and I'm trying to be curious about all this stuff and, and, and look at it, you know, in fresh ways as well. But I would say that the Old Testament is a very long record Probably, you know, the writings that make up the Old Testament probably are about a thousand years. That's a long span of time. Hmm. And they are a record of, of people's real experiences with God and how those experiences reflect the time and the setting that they're in. And that models for us our own journey of faith, which also has different times and different circumstances. And we it's comforting to see that reflected back in this ancient text. So it's not, again, I, I use this metaphor a lot, but it's not a rule book or it's not an owner's manual. It's more modeling for us this journey of faith, which can sometimes look like one psalm over here or another psalm over there. It can sometimes act like, you know, everything's going smoothly or everything's falling apart. You know, and I think this is why you have in the Bible, it's so important to really embrace books like Ecclesiastes or Job, and not just as curious oddities, but as very, very important books or Lamentations or the Lament Psalms, which are complaining against what you might call the dominant narrative of the Old Testament. Like, here's God. Obey him, things go well. Disobey him, things go poorly. And all these books are saying, yeah, no, <laughs> it's not, th this right. is not working. And I think w this is this beautiful debate and dialogue that we have that should not be squelched. It shouldn't be covered up. It shouldn't be papered over. It shouldn't be uh, made nice and made to behave. It should be allowed to sort of have sway because that's exactly our lives, you know, who doesn't have ups and downs? Mm. Who doesn't sometimes feel like Job and other times feel like, you know, a triumphant moment in the in the Bible, right? And and I think both of those are valid. And again, you know, the compilers of the Bible after the exile, after this terrible moment of crisis and, and the sense of being abandoned by God in the sixth century, when they compile the Bible, they could have made all sorts of decisions about what to leave out. And they kept in this, this counter voice, this, this dialogue, this even inner debate of the Bible. And, you know, if, if we, if we lose that, I just think we lose so much of what makes the mm. Bible actually worth reading. Mm. Gosh, I agree. And I can hear some of my listeners and probably this is my own upbringing coming out in me too, saying, Oh my gosh, we're starting to see those tensions in the Old Testament now, all these stories that we grew up with as believing they were 100% accurate, 
accurate, 100%, you know, no fault, no, no tension anywhere inside of scripture, that it all married itself together perfectly and, and easily. Now I'm seeing it all kind of crumble. And there's a bit of panic that comes when you start seeing what you have built your belief on now starting to, to not fit so nicely as it used to. So what would you say to to people, because I know I have many listeners in this point in their journey that are feeling that that moment of panic, like, oh my gosh, there, wait, there's two creation stories? <laughs> like, what do I do with yeah. that? Well, no, and I get it. Yeah, I mean, it's panic is one way of putting it, just yeah. being afraid is another way of putting it. And that's, I think that is the common emotion and I think that has to be respected too, because if we run away from that, we never work through that. And I think I think people see w- when you don't face the fear and the panic, mm. you just become angry. And I think rather than doing that, just say I'm really afraid. Just just say that to yourself or to somebody else, and then start thinking about why are you afraid? You know what will happen here if the Bible doesn't work the way that you might have thought it worked? What if there's something more here that's way out ahead of you? And maybe there's something to learn about this God and about this text. And that's always going to be scary when you're leaving the familiar ground. Yeah. You know, what if what you're really, um, you think you're losing faith or you think you're losing God, maybe really what you're doing is losing a version of that and it needs to grow. It needs to move beyond that. That this could be, well, I think this is a very positive time, even though it doesn't look like it. And the hard part is that, you know, people like what you're describing and are probably, they've been raised this way. And this is the only faith that they know that the Bible, okay, bottom line, here's the foundation of our faith, the Bible, and this is how it Mm -hmm. works. And once you start cracking that, if that gets cracked too much, then ipso facto, you have no faith left. Right. And I like to remind people the foundation of your faith is God and your humanity and Jesus. That's the foundation. And that there's a mystery to that. It's not a text that you control, but the text bears witness to this whole relationship of faith. And it, But see, that takes, that's a huge step, it isn't is. it? You know, it's like you're asking people to, it's basically a, just a, a large-scale theological re-education. Mm. That's a and good way to that's put it. an awful, that's a hard thing to expect of people. And that's why, you know, people who have positions where they can actually converse with, with people who are struggling with that. I mean, that's, that's a big deal, I think, to do yeah. that. That's not easy. And, and, but it's, it's a responsibility too. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.